Welcome, everybody, to a special Pledge Drive edition of Truth to Power here on Forward Radio, your weekly community conversation where we gather around the microphones to talk about issues that you won't hear anywhere else on the dial that matter in our community. News of the day, goings on. You can find it all here on Truth to Power. And the only way we're able to do this is with your support. It's our pledge drive right now. We're celebrating our fourth anniversary of broadcasting to the Louisville community on April 9th. And it's time for you, the listeners, to step up and give us a little birthday present. Uh, we know times are tough for some of you during COVID and the pandemic. Uh, we know not everybody can contribute. But those of you out there who maybe have a paycheck still coming in, a little bit of extra money, maybe you didn't take that vacation last summer because of the pandemic pandemic and you're sitting on a few dollars if you could send them our way we could keep this amazing community treasure going for another year our we'd love to celebrate our fifth birthday together with you in a year's time but the only way we can do that is if we get to our goal of raising five thousand dollars uh during this pledge drive uh, by april 9th and the special thing about donating to ford radio now is that there are lots of great thank you gifts available uh which are only available during the pledge drive uh, so in exchange for your gift to us we are excited to give a gift to you and there are so many different levels you can give at starting at $15 for a uh, face mask or uh, WFMP buttons uh, all the way up to $500 gifts that will get you a custom painting of your pet from a local artist an award winning uh, wildlife artist uh, there's great WFMP gear available only right now whether it's uh, Hey, man, it's gotten cold again all of a sudden. You might want a WFMP hoodie. Uh, pick one up at the $50 level or some hand-stitched items by local refugees uh, through our partners at Stitch. And uh, they'll be getting uh, 100% of the, 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 the women who sew it will be getting 100% of the, the, pro the profits from the item. And Forward Radio will get the rest. And there's pillows and tote bags and microwave pot holders and all kinds of great stuff. A few books available still. Uh, and so you can check it all out at forwardradio.org. Just click on the big donate to our pledge drive uh, button at the top. It'll send you over to our Indiegogo. Uh, if you don't want a thank you gift, that's fine too. We'd love to have you. You can click on back it at the top of the page and, and donate whatever you're able to. Uh, but again, there's these special thank you gifts are only available now through April 9th. So uh, check it out and, and please contribute. Well, what we're going to do today on Truth to How... Truth to Power is have a deep dive about Streets for People, one of our proud community partners here at Forward Radio. Uh, it's a new evolution of an organization you're probably already familiar with if you listen to Forward Radio, which is Bicycling for Louisville. Uh, has always had a mission, really, to make the streets safer for everyone. And this sort of renaming and rebranding of the organization is what that's all about. And I've got with me the executive director of Streets for People, my good friend, Chris Glasser, welcome to the virtual studio, Chris. Hey, Moz. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's so nice to have you back. Man, Chris Glasser was my very first guest way back in April of 2017 when this crazy dream of a community radio station first launched uh, on sustainability now. Chris and I had a great conversation about uh, bicycling in Louisville and what the city needs. And, man... 
I don't know. Things the the pause button seemed to be hit on on bicycling infrastructure right around 2017, right? Um, mm-hmm. and, and a lot of that I think was around this like controversy around Mayor McBike Lane, right? <laughs> totally. Totally. What happened? Do you know what happened? There, there used to be dedicated annual funding for bike lanes and stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think it's more just the city budget is, is a, a big mess. There's just <laughs> not a lot of money in the city budget, and it was an easy thing to knock off the budget. But at the end of the day, you know, it was, it was about $300,000 to $500,000 in a budget that's, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. And as Mayor Fisher often pointed out, he, he would laugh, he would sort of scoff or laugh at the, at all the attention that the bike lane money got. Cause he would point out, it's like, this is less than 1% of the budget. <laughs> yeah. It gets so much of the oxygen around the conversation of the budget. Just ridiculous. I mean, if anything, um, he's but, mayor Mick police. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can't comment on that. <laughs> That's not my lane. <laughs> Stay in your bike lane. Chris. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, you know, I will say though, since 2017, the one major project that has happened, uh, and I, I don't want to get us off track from things, but the the Barrett Avenue uh, sort of multi-use path yeah. that connects into the protected bike lane on Castlewood that protects into Tyler Park, that connects into the the ramp that has replaced the staircase. Oh, that is a nice underpass at Tyler Park. Has created this like amazing bike ped. Uh, connection from Germantown into the Highlands. And, you know, I, honestly, I take a lot of pride in bicycling for Louisville and streets for people being a part of that, really being the catalyst and making that happen years ago. And and I remember pitching that to the bike ped coordinator at the time, Rolf Eisinger, and really like pushing that, pushing that, pushing that. And it took a long, long time as everything does man it's great it's so good and you know every time i i am on those streets i'm biking or walking or driving it's great to see like the range of people that are using that lane and you know see people walking their dogs see people pushing their strollers see people riding their bikes that's great that's what we want to see it's amazing and you know what it hasn't slowed anyone down in their car it hasn't <laughs> messed anybody up i've never seen a traffic uh, jam there yeah yeah it's, it's great and i just love it and tyler park is just you know, Olmstead Park did a great job with the renovation of Tyler Park recently, and it's just an amazing space, and it's been like a really vibrant space that people can use um, in these COVID times. That's that's awesome. I love it. Yeah, urbanists and and urban planners uh, often refer to this as like the way that public infrastructure can help activate a space, right? Uh, and I think I've I really seen that on Castlewood and Tyler Park, what you're talking about. Um, a place that was really just cars, four lanes for cars, and and maybe someone walking on the narrow sidewalk occasionally, uh, is now a place where you see families, you see all kinds of people on all kinds of conveyances. It's certainly not just about bikes, right? It's on skateboards and scooters and strollers and uh, any any kind of conveyance or on their feet. And, and it's making a, a it's using the same public space for m- multiple kinds of uses and and really activating it, right? Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, couldn't have said it better. Uh, yeah, definitely agree. Like before, uh, there, and it still exists as a very narrow sidewalk on the other side of the street. It's these utility poles in the middle of the sidewalk. So like 
you know, my wife and I, we'd, we'd walk down that street uh, and, you know, we'd have to walk in a single file line or, you <laughs> yeah. know, and have to like get on the grass just to go around the telephone pole. And it's just like, <laughs> this, stinks. this is just like such a frustrating experience. Uh, and it's just totally switched now. Like we will walk with, you know, we now have two kids. We'll push that double stroller in that, in the sort of multi-use lane. That's great. And we feel totally safe and it's awesome. Uh, and, you know, I think what you love to see is just like these facilities that can serve everyone eight to 80, you know, like yeah. anybody can use that lane for any, any sort of thing. You can ride your skateboard in it you can ride your scooter. You can go for a jog, you know, I love it. I just love it. And so, um, and I think there's, there's a lot of things that we have sort of have on the docket to talk about today sort of fit into like, the next step or like the thinking about like other public spaces in similar ways. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Uh, we've got, we got several things we, we want to touch on that are kind of, uh, hot news items for us and, and, and considerations in this time of transition back to like re people re-engaging with Louisville and, and, and coming back after the pandemic. Uh, of course, some of the changes we hope to see made permanent are things that started during the pandemic. So let's, let's talk about those scenic loops in the Olmstead parks. Um, it was, it was a year ago, right, in April or maybe late March of uh, 2020 that the city uh, re suddenly realized that, man, the parks are getting way more usage in COVID times and there's not enough room on these streets for cars anymore. So let's make this uh, these sort of long asphalt loops or, or roadways into places for people again and see what happens if we shut out the cars. Um, it, they did that at three parks, as far as I'm aware, Cherokee, Iroquois and Chickasaw. Now, they ended up reopening Chickasaw Loop, right? Uh, do you know the story about yeah. that? Yeah, I think the logistics of the Chickasaw Loop closure were just, from talking to the Olmstead Parks people, a little bit more difficult. Like, to see other loops, um, Iroquois and, and Cherokee, they're like different access points. Chickasaw is a smaller park, and the loop is sort of just like one way in, one way out. Yeah. And I think they saw, and there's like tennis courts that people park at, uh, that are sort of on the far end of that loop. And I think there was, this, that was the concern there. So I do know that they uh, reverted to making the Chickasaw Loop car accessible. I'm sort of surprised they didn't do something at Shawnee Park that would be, hmm. uh, if not a complete, you know, closure to cars, like a partial closure, but that was, that was never discussed, you know, at least publicly. Um, but that, you know, obviously the three primary uh, Olmstead parks are Shawnee, Iroquois, and Cherokee. So I, I was sort of surprised that Shawnee sort of never came into the public conversation. Anyway, yeah, but yeah, Iroquois and Cherokee to this day remain car free. And and the city is now trying to figure out whether to make that a permanent change or if if do we change it back but in a different way so you've been in on yeah. some of these conversations with the metro council folks talk, talk to us a little bit about um and and this is in some ways a public process right like there's been some public meetings about it yeah i mean there have been some meetings that like uh like most recently uh kathy chambers armstrong councilwoman for district eight which is the 
Highlands District, which is for Cherokee Park, she held a public meeting. And at that public meeting, she had the Parks Department, she had the Planning Department, she had the Public Works Department there to kind of talk about their different considerations. And they also talked about the survey that the Olmstead Parks Conservancy had put out in mm. coordination with their consideration of what to do next. So Olmstead Parks Conservancy, which is a Louisville Metro government affiliated nonprofit organization there. So, um, so the survey that they put out, uh, roughly two thirds of the respondents to that survey uh, said that they would like to keep the loop car free. Uh, and a third said that they would like to reopen it to cars. They also had a second question in the survey that asked, um, you know, uh, would you support, um, would it be your preference to see a partial reopening of the loop uh, around the Hogan Fountain area? And that actually got less support, about 62% of the support and 38% opposed. My take on that was sort of like the wording was a little weird, like yeah. sort of a question of like, do I prefer it to the other option uh. or, or, am I, or am I saying oh, I'm okay with it? You know, um, and so, um, it seemed like it seems like that was being presented as a compromise option, and it actually got less less support <laughs> than, than the other, the hardcore option. Um, but anyway, yes. So that was in one public meeting, and then uh, Olmsted Parks Conservancy put out like a similar survey about Iroquois Park and what to do with the loop over there. And I know different council members have been holding uh, public engagement sessions about about this idea. Yeah. Yeah. And what is the position of streets for people on this? Is it the hardcore position that, yeah, there should be no cars anywhere in the parks or um, do you think maybe there, there are ways to integrate cars in a, in a way that doesn't sort of ruin it for everybody else? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. And I think, you know, in my conversations with Homestead Park, Conservancy going back to last year when and the council person at the time, Bryn Cohn, um, for Cherokee Park was um, maybe so that they didn't see that the total closure of cars was like a long term was going to be viable uh, in the sense that like the city department and the parks department um, saw that as like a really viable thing to do long term. Mm. So the question was like, okay, what if, that's, if it's not going to be totally car free the way it is now, long term, like what what is the best adjusted option? Mm. And so, and, and I think, and so to me, and I, and I agree with this. I think you know there is like the accessibility options. We want to make sure that people uh, who have limited accessibility are able to get into the park, but also not um, you know sort of uh, hampering other people's ability to use the park. And yeah. we don't want the park to be a cut through space for people. Right. Um, so I think one major consideration in this is that the city just, or Olmstead Parks have just invested a ton of money, a huge capital project, uh, huge capital project in the Hogan Fountain area, expanding car parking, like literally mm-hmm. months before the COVID, uh, before COVID hit, uh, they rolled out this new design uh, for the top of the hill at Hogan Fountain, expanded parking, added a, a loop, a smaller loop up there at the top. Um, and, you know, cleaned up the basketball courts. And that's like a space where people meet for like family barbecues and, and things like that. And um, there's like a, a bathroom there and things like that. And, and so, you know, our, our 
stance as, a, uh, as an advocacy group has been to say like, um, you know, that limiting access to Hogan Fountain area makes sense, or car access to, to that area makes sense. And, uh, and that's something we support while keeping the rest of the loop car free. Um, so I think, you know, that was something we suggested back over a year ago. And, you know, it's, it's always tough to say how much your advocacy voice, like, yeah. <laughs> here's the conversation. Uh, but, you know, that's where we've ended up. So, I, you know, I can't complain really about that. Because originally they were talking about, like, maybe on Wednesday, Thursday, you know, Saturday, it'd be one thing. And on, you know, oh. other days of the week, they'd do it like, you know, another thing and, and alternate it this way or that. And that always seems like just a, a bad idea, in my opinion, to have it like, you know, work one way certain days of the week and the other day work differently the other days of the week. And that's what they that's what they've done at your quick part historically, like going oh. back pre COVID time, like the the road up to the top of Iroquois Park has been like only certain days of the week. Huh. Uh, can people can people drive on it? And um you know, that didn't seem like the best solution for, for Cherokee Park, I didn't think. Yeah, I can imagine that's hard to remember, hard for the public to remember, <laughs> and hard for the parks to manage all that. Um, what yeah, about, that, that'll, you know, involves changing it every day. You yeah. Know? It seems like the bad, not a good way to do it. What about reopening in a way where half of the roadway is kept safe for people outside of cars and the other half is cars. I mean, that's kind of how the Cherokee loop was, but with paint, is there a better way to do it? Yeah. You know, I, so I, again, I'm happy with the, the compromise solution uh, around the Hogan Fountain access. And I, you know, there may be some quibbles here about how you can do it. This or that. I think, so I think that makes sense. You know, the two thirds to three quarters of the loop is going to remain car free one third to a quarter is going to have car access to it. So to me, the, the two questions that come from that is like, one, the area where there are going to be cars returning to the loop, are you going to add any protection right. to, you know, for, for the other side? And, and the thing is, is like at Iroquois Park, they have put, put in these protective bollards uh, on the street that, especially at the bins in the road with the sort of blind corners to just make the, the, the walking biking lane, uh, more protected. Yeah. And I think they could do something very comparable, uh, in Cherokee park as well. So I I'd like to see that change, um, in Cherokee park, you know, assuming we go forward with the Hogan's fountain car access point. The other question that I have, you know, uh, for Cherokee park is, with the closure around the scenic loop at Cherokee Park is there's a bunch of access roads that have also been made car free. Mm. And, and those roads are um, Ledge Road, Barrett Hill Road, Maple Road, Beargrass Road. And I know most people don't even know what these roads are yeah. called. You know, <laughs> you're just in the park and you're like, you know, that there's this little windy loop over here, that over there. But these are the, these are the roads that sort of like, zig and zag across Beargrass Creek and things like that. And they've been cut off to cars as well uh, in these COVID times. And, and my question that I've raised with um, Olmstead Parks and Park Louisville Metro Parks and Public Works and Planning and, and Cassie Chambers Armstrong is, is 
um, you know, what, what's happening here with the, um, with these adjacent roads. And I, I would love to see them remain car free. And so like, for instance, just like maybe give listeners like a visual is this like ledge road. That is the road that's off of like Lexington road, mm-hmm. um, near the Beargrass Creek trail mm-hmm. that leads into the scenic loop at the, at, at ledge road and Lexington road, there's a little like pull off parking lot right. that, you know, maybe can store 10 to 20 cars. And they have put up a barrier that prevents cars from going past that. Right. So you can like pull, pull off into ledge road and park. Then you, and then you pass that and you're in a car free park, even though you're not on the scenic loop. The question, you know, that we're trying to get answered, is like, is that going to remain car free? We would love to see it remain car free. And these are, the, and you know, if you can make these adjacent roads car free, you're essentially sort of like doubling the total of like car free area within the Cherokee Park area. And that would be, that would be amazing. I'd yeah. love to see that. Love it. I'm speaking today here on Truth to Power with Chris Glasser from Streets for People, formerly uh, Bicycling for Louisville. They're a proud community partner of Forward Radio. That means that the folks at Streets for People are chipping in a few bucks to help keep this station on the air. And you can, too, right now during our pledge drive. We're celebrating our fourth anniversary, and April 9th will be our birth date. And through that date, you can pledge to our pledge drive and pick up on some great thank you gifts at all kinds of pledge levels starting at just 15 bucks uh, and there is great WFMP gear whether you want a t-shirt or a hoodie or a really nice insulated bottle that I highly recommend uh, and there's also some great crafts available uh, only now through the end of the pledge drive you can find it all at forwardradio.org click on the donate to the pledge drive orange button at the top and while you're there pick up a t- ticket for our Zoom talent show coming up on Saturday, April 10th at 7 p.m. They're only 10 bucks, and it's all going to be great fun to support the station. Uh, so let's let's move on to another topic that uh, Streets for People has been interested in, which is how do we fund what we call slow streets, right? <laughs> because it's it's yeah. kind of, it's easier to get uh, funding for you know big big projects or things the city's used to doing. Uh, but how do we fund slowing down our neighborhood streets? Yeah, and this is a nut we're we're trying to crack. And <laughs> I think you know it's because the the avenues that are open to us right now to to make this happen are just so onerous. Uh, and impossible and require all this extra bureaucracy. Right. Um, and, and they're just not like good methods for implementing the change we want to see. And so uh, an example of this is like the speed hump policy that the city has, uh, which uh, sets up like a number of like sort of hoops to jump through. Uh, uh, one is that you have to receive 70% oh, of yeah. the, the, uh, the homeowners on a block have to support having speed humps on the street, even <laughs> for that street to be considered. That's, that's like a big bar to clear. I mean, as we were just talking, two thirds of people support the, the scenic loop saying car free, which is pretty like out there idea for Louisville. And you're saying 70, that, that doesn't even clear the 70% bar, um, you know, uh, for that we have, have for, traffic calming, just like basic uh, 
speed humps on a street. And it's and another thing is like the that bar only applies to homeowners and like for roads where there's a lot of people renting, it's like actually pretty hard to track down homeowners. And so this is like a huge barrier to like creating what could be like a very simple traffic calming measure on a street. Um, and so, well, and it sounds, a number of cities, it sounds yeah, go like ahead. it could also bias the investment in this kinds of infrastructure into places uh, where there are more homeowners, maybe like you were saying, oh, exactly. the whole yeah. renter problem yeah, totally. or, or, you know, I, oh, yeah, the, I bike through, bias. Yeah. I, yeah, I bike oh. through Smoketown every day and there's lots of blocks there where uh, 70% of homeowners on a block might be two or three people because there's so few homes with all the vacant lots. And man, I can imagine how difficult it would be then to get uh, to get speed bumps in on that block. And then we, we want to think about more than just one block at a time, right? You want to think about uh, oh, yeah. roadways. Yeah, so this is exactly the problem is that, like, for instance, you were just talking about uh, Smoketown. So, like, uh, Clay Street in uh, the sort of Smoketown Shelby Park neighborhood, one block of it uh, between Kentucky and Breckenridge Street, they had speed dumps put in. And that's great for that one block. Yeah, but the block to the north of yeah, that, yeah. the block to the south of that, don't have speed on. And there's, so there's no sort of cohesive uh, planning that goes into yeah. saying Clay Street is a slow street. Clay Street goes from the Ohio River all the way to, uh, you know, all the way to Shelby Park. That's, you know, 2.5 miles. We want to make this whole 2.5 mile stretch a slow street where cars, if they're on it, have to, you know, go at a very slow speed at a safe speed for everyone and um and so those things just don't exist in the in the city and, and traffic calming gets implemented in this sort of haphazard one-off method and we'd like to see you know what we're advocating for is, is a more planned fully considered approach to traffic calming streets and that's what we're we're pushing not just for sort of the consideration of that but the funding for, for that. Well, do you know the story of those Clay Street speed humps? How did those even, who advocated for those? How did those happen? <laughs> yeah, I think that's just like a mystery, uh, <laughs> you know, on block. It's the sort of like the special alchemy of things come together. And, 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 that, and that's just like totally absurd. I mean, there's an example of like that in every neighborhood. I was speaking with the councilwoman, uh, Nicole George, about this. In her district and she was like pointing to this one block you know that had speed humps that was able to successfully lobby the city she's like you know this you know this block got it because like the guy on this block that was pushing for it used to work for metro and he mm. sort of like knew the right people to like talk to you about this you know it's like he it's like that if that's the way this gets done that's the that's a terrible way to get things done. Yeah. And the same thing happened, you know, the same thing happens around like Atherton High School, like Dundee Road mm. up there, you know, like there's like one block of Dundee Road that has speed humps. It's like, wow, this is, you know, this is a long road. There, <laughs> there are many places where, you, can, you know, the whole road could have speed humps, but for whatever reason, the, the alchemy of this group of people produced, uh, you know, uh, result of the speed humps and you know you just see that all over the city clay street dundee you know yeah. going on, on and on and so we'll even again uh 
So no, to answer your question directly, I'm not sure what it was with Play Street that was special for that one block. And that's the problem. You know, like it needs to be a fully considered planned thing where the city says, this is a slow street. You know, this is a street where we want to really encourage off, uh, you know, biking and walking and, and slow traffic to make it a neighborhood street that everyone can feel comfortable on. Well, this is encouraging that Nicole George is open to this idea, right? Because she's chair of the Public Works Committee, right? So the, she might actually be able to uh, leverage that position to actually, I don't know, what, what are we looking for here? Like some kind of ordinance or, or what do you envision would be a solution to this perennial problem of random speed humps here and there and not uh, integrated thinking about it? Yeah. So, I mean, to me, it's a two-pronged part problem one problem of that is um sort of like dedicating or like saying that speed humps sort of speed humps policy or a traffic calming policy to think of it more broadly um uh you know for the city and having like designated slow streets that meet that don't have to meet this this onerously high bar that we've set for all the other streets and so this is what other cities uh, in North America and the United States have done. Uh, and, you know, a lot of them are the sort of usual suspects, progressive, bigger cities, you know, your Portland, your Pittsburgh, your Boston, your Berkeley. I will say we're going to have a slow street network and some city might call them bike boulevard. Some street might call them neighborhood or some cities yeah. might call them neighborhood greenways. Some streets, some cities might call them slow streets, but they're all sort of the same thing and they're implementing traffic calming measures and volume management measures to, you know, if you're driving on the street, you're going slow and you're sort of encouraged not to drive multiple blocks on your street in your car. And so that's one thing. It's one, you sort of set up a planned system of, of slow streets. And two, the second thing is, is actually the, in my mind, the easier thing is you, you dedicate money to it. And we saw this with the bike network uh, is, is you can have all the sort of like ideas in the world about what the bike network could or couldn't be, but if there's no funding for it, uh, it's not going to happen. And if there is funding for it, that drives the idea. So if like you can, if, if there's just a little bit of cash uh, to be spent on these things, that that spurs people to start thinking about how, how they're going to use it. And so the thing is about these traffic calming measures is, is there's, Super cheap, like uh, putting in one speed hump is two thousand uh, dollars, and the city budget, you know, it's nothing. Like it's a hmm. tiny amount of money, and so you know, if you're able to dedicate a hundred thousand uh, dollars to say for slow streets citywide, and and say we want to create a slow street network, we're going to base it off of the neighbor way network that exists currently, which is a collection of bike bikeways that are on neighborhood streets um and we're gonna you know put money uh from this you know, use this pot of money to make those streets more traffic calmed um that's how i see it working you did it you you identify the network you say that like these are the sort of tools we're going to use we're going to use neck downs we're going to use uh traffic um circles, we're going to use speed mm. humps to calm traffic, and then you say, uh, we're going to use this pot of money. 
And the thing, the great thing is it really doesn't have to be a lot of money. Yeah. Like you, you could take a hundred thousand dollars again, a city budget is nothing to be $50,000. That would still begin to like make a significant impact. I mean, uh, and what we see in the city as, as far as like traffic calming. And my hope with that is that uh, once you sort of get that ball rolling a little bit, it, it can gain, gain momentum. People see like, okay, like I love, I would love to have my street uh, in my neighborhood, or I would love to, in my neighborhood to have a street like this that I can use this way. Um, because I think people, once they see it and see that it, it could be like a great thing, it, 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 I think it would get broad support. I, I don't see it as like a, we were talking, we started this conversation about like Mayor McBike Lane and all this stuff <laughs> and like how that, that sort of backfired. But I think almost universal feeling amongst like residents everywhere is they just wish the street outside the front door was safer. Yeah. And I, and I, I think this could be a great way to make that happen. Well, and greener, too, with some of these, um, maybe not speed humps, but some of these other things you're talking about, like uh, narrowing the, the the crosswalks at intersections, a curb bulb out, those kinds of things. Those open up space for planting trees or other vegetation or, or stormwater infiltration. And so it can really be multifunction uh, and beautify the neighborhood as well as make it safer. Yeah, totally, totally. And yeah, thanks for bringing that up. That's something for I've I didn't even mention, but I, I completely agree that, yeah, neck downs add this additional green space. You plant, you know, a tree or a tree, you know, two trees. You know, yeah. I, I agree completely. It, it's a great way to like just reimagine public space and really beautify it. Totally agree. So before before we leave the topic of slow streets, Chris, do you have your eyes on any other streets? You mentioned Clay. That's kind of an interesting one. But do you have your eye on any other streets that you would really like to see become one of these slow streets? You know, uh, only because uh, I was talking to, to Nicole George about it. Um, and I sort of, you know, within her district, walking the streets with her. Um, we were walking down Peachtree and Cliff, which are these, what could be these very quiet residential streets. And, you know, as state would have it, I, actually, I don't think it was fate. I think it's just the way the road part, <laughs> people were, people were flying down those streets. And yeah. we were like, this is a quiet, this is a neighborhood street. Why are people driving like this? And, you know, I think as, as my sense of like during that conversation a little bit, you know, I don't want to put words in her mouth, but like, I think she maybe like, as we were started the conversation, was a little bit skeptical of the idea, but like, as we just walked down Peach Tree and just saw people just like zooming down what could be this quiet street, <laughs> it's sort of like, it's like, yeah, this is ridiculous. Like, why are people doing this? And so, um, you know, and like, you know, her, that part of town, which is sort of like South Louisville near Beachmont, you know, that's like a residential area, you know, like this is, this is an area that should be, you know, a, a place where people should feel safe riding their bikes yeah. and like laying their kids outside their house or like themselves, you know, if they're an adult is like going out and riding a bike themselves, walking, walking down the street themselves um, in their neighborhood, they should feel safe. And so mm -hmm. those are the streets that sort of immediately come to mind, like the, the, the cliffs, the, the peach trees, which I, you know, I think are like, that's a deep cut for you, Maz, but <laughs> what can I say? That's, that's where my head is at. 
Yeah, love that part of town down in Beachmont, right? Um, well, let's talk about another roadway that um, Streets for People has really had its eye on, which is, and man, I have known this since 2009 when I moved here, and this used to be part of my bike commute uh, into UofL, is Norris and Douglas, and the idea of a protected two-way bike lane. Um, why is this thoroughfare so important for people on bikes? You know, uh, I mean, part of it is that it, the bike network has grown out from the sort of city core in, in every direction. So there's there's bike lanes to the south, there's bike lanes to the east, bike lanes to the west. And if you go to the east, sort of as we, when we started this conversation, we talked about, we just built this great thing that leads you right into Tyler Park. Yeah. You, get, you know, but if you, if, you, if you go past Tyler Park, you got nothing. You know? <laughs> and so the next thing after Tyler Park, uh, is north. Know, it's not. It's not going to be Newburgh Road. That's a state road. <laughs> it's pretty narrow. Farshan Road. They've got the redesign plan. It doesn't include bike lanes. Uh, understandably, it's a fairly narrow road, and you know, you know, that's not a battle I'm interested in fighting. Trying to put bike lanes on Farshan Road currently. Uh, but Norris Douglas is a is a residential street. It has pretty minimal parking on street parking demand because there are a lot of driveways uh, for the houses that do face the road. And for the, um, a lot of the road doesn't, there aren't like homes facing it. Like it's, it's the, the street uh, perpendicular that has the homes facing it. So anyway, there's, there's modest on street parking demand and there's excess width. And I think it could be this uh, fantastic connection further into the highlands. You know, I just imagine, um, you know, uh, Bellarmine students being able to bike to Bellarmine. Yeah. Uh, Highland Middle School students being able to bike to and from school. Um, you know, children being able to bike to Lakeside Swimming Pool or, you know, being able to bike to Douglas uh, Loop and get ice cream at Craters. You know, all these things um, that could be a part of the, the everyday neighborhood activity the way we've seen on Castlewood and Barrett with that, that bike lane there. I think could be uh, could be what Norris Douglas could look like going forward, and so yeah, we've we've been having conversations with um, the the councilwoman there again, Kathy Chambers Armstrong, about that idea. Talk to the folks in advanced planning about that idea, and begin to talk about like what's funding for a project like that. The book, you know, and and so that's where that conversation is at. And it's interesting, uh, you know, on, on Norris, they've already done some of these neck downs that you're talking about um, around, oh, now I'm forgetting the name shenanigans. of the Shenanigans. Shenanigans, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess you got to protect yeah. the drunk uh, drunk folks stumbling home. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And those, those are fine. Uh, but, you know, if, if we're going to put in a protected bike lane, like, you know, on one side of the street, which is what we're proposing. We're proposing something comparable to what's on um, Castlewood. Castlewood, where it's an on-street, two-way protected bike lane. Um, and it would, essentially, it would cut parking from one side of the street, keep parking on the other side of the street, maintain two driving lanes. And, you know, I think there, there are so many examples of residential streets that have only have parking on one side of the street that works fine. Uh, Hillcrest Avenue in the Crescent Hill neighborhood is one such street. Trillion Way, um, 
you know, is one such street around like around Lakeside. Um, you know, it, it it shouldn't be a problem, especially with like the obvious, obviously very modest minimal parking on street parking demand in that neighborhood. In my opinion, you know, convincing other folks of that. Yeah, that's a different question. So this, I mean, this proposal wouldn't uh, reduce the amount of travel lanes. It's just about taking a parking lane and devoting it to people. That's why we're called Streets for People, right? Um, and I think it's an important thing to consider um, for someone who maybe hasn't ridden a bicycle on our city streets. When you have a road like that, like Norris and Douglas, where um, th there are two lanes and then two parking lanes and often places where nobody's parked at all, to a driver, that's like an invitation to go really fast. <laughs> You've got all this roadway. Uh, and for a cyclist, you're kind of having to uh, navigate all that and deal with different different road configurations as you go down based on where people are parked, right? Like sometimes you're forced to sort of weave back into traffic, right? And so this would eliminate all of that. Yeah, totally. I, and those roads definitely present like unique dangers I've, I've found when riding a bike is, is that like, you know, if there's only one car a block, that still means you're sort of yeah. on a, when you're on a parked car per block, that means you are wanting to get over, you know, into the parking lane on your bike, you right. know, when you're at certain times and then you're trying to get back onto the street and you're sort of like constantly ducking and weaving in and out of the driving lane. Um, because you don't want to get in the driver's way because you know there's all this room <laughs> off to the right. Yeah, and so I mean, those I mean, to me, those are some of the most stressful streets to drive on. Uh, yeah, you, uh, you're constantly going in and out and out of the driving lane, and this would change that. Um, and that, you know, I, to me, hopefully, that like the sort of proof of concept of, of Castlewood can like show folks that um, that this thing can exist and be great. And I, and I really hope, I really want the city to get away from like, I don't, I, I'm, no, I'm calling them like a, a two way protected bike lane, but like, it doesn't have to be a, a bike lane. It could just be, mm. you know, like people are going to ride their scooters in it. Yep. I would love to see people pushing their strollers in it. Like, that's okay. Like, <laughs> you know, when you paint it on the street, paint, you know, paint all the different ways people can use it. A dog like symbol. Billion... We need a dog symbol. <laughs> yeah, we need a dog walking symbol. We need a stroller pushing symbol. We need a jogger symbol. Because you know, because you know, I think it, it's just what it is. It's like it's it's going to be eight to ten feet of like just protected, safe space yeah. uh, for would-be vulnerable users. And it like you know, because uh, the sidewalks today are pretty narrow and. They're filled with like um, big poles there through, through that utility poles in that section too. So it's just like, it's just a space to go to get out and enjoy the street. Um, and I think, uh, I think it's a project that we could do like very cheaply. I, you know, I, I think it could be, you know, if we did it all the way from Douglas Loop to, um, to Eastern Parkway, I think that's like less than a hundred thousand dollars as far as a project and, and, you know, it's really just going to be paint and post, but I think it can make just a huge impact on how people use the street. 
I'm speaking here on Truth to Power with Chris Glasser from Streets for People. They're a proud community partner of Forward Radio. Streets for People helps keep us on the air, but it's really our listeners that keep us going. Uh, it takes $20 a day to keep this station broadcasting to the Louisville community and the world at forwardradio.org, 24-7, 365. And we come once a year to ask you during our pledge drive to help fund the station with your donations today. You can go to forwardradio.org, click on the Donate to Our Pledge Drive button, and see all the great thank you gifts that you can pick on, uh, pick up on right now and help us get towards our goal. We're only about a third of the way there, so we really need your help uh, to chip in what you can today. Maybe you can take home some great WFMP gear, buttons, pins, uh, t-shirts, long sleeve tees, a hoodie, or a great insulated bottle, or pick up on some of the great handmade crafts that are also available. We've got a few books still on offer, uh, and you can find it all at forwardradio.org and help keep us on the air for our fifth year running. Uh, um, well, we've saved the best for last, Chris. Let's talk about the M-U-T-C-D, which I mean is oh, going to... These, these are letters mean nothing to our listeners, so let's start there. What is the yeah. M-U-T-C-D? Yeah, this is such a deep dive, and I almost like reluctant <laughs> to talk about it. Yeah, this is a deep cut, but honestly, it affects everybody. It's one of those things that just, uh, yeah, affects everyone's sort of like way of life and the way we go about <laughs> living. So that's, that is something that every city in America sort of abides by. It's the traffic control devices, which is say the stop signs and crosswalk symbols and traffic lights that we all use. It's, uh, it's every the day. manual, right? The manual. It's of the manual. Yeah. Urban. It's the manual uh, for the uniform application of traffic control. Ah, devices. Okay. Yeah. So it's not just urban. This is highways too. Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. For sure. Yeah. It's countrywide. Everyone uses it. And, and it's sort of like, and that's sort of the problem is that it's, it's this uniform application of traffic control devices that, that um, doesn't consider sort of different circumstances. And it's just like itself a very car-centric, uh, vehicular-focused uh, manual. And uh, there's, I think there's like just nationally a discussion about how it's, it's outdated. Um, and how it needs to be revised. And who came up with this thing? Is this the Federal Highway Administration or something like that that developed this manual? They use it. Oh, you, oh that's a great question. And I'm, I'm blanking on who, who is the actual author of, yeah. of the manual. Uh, I, sh- I should know the answer to that question. That's okay. I'm but- not. There's, yeah, sorry. But like you say, uh, all municipalities are sort of required. Like, there's no flexibility. Yeah, so there's like an ordinance that Louisville is required to follow the manual. So oh. there, it is law that, or like an engineer, the public works department, um, has to sort of follow, has to follow the rules laid out in the MUTCD, uh, and so they can't just like install a stop sign at you know. Bardstown Road and Eastern Parkway because they feel like it, you know, like they they are required by law to follow the standards and the standards they the stop sign, for example, is not an appropriate uh, traffic control device at, you know, an intersection of that size, for example. So it's not just like what the signs look like, although that's in there too. But that's it, certainly part of it. Yes, that's certainly part of it. But it also affects roadway design and what you can 
put on a roadway? So would something like a two-way bike lane like the Castlewood Project or the what we're proposing here and Norris and, and Douglas, w- would that fit in with the current MUTCD? Uh, that doesn't really have – the MUTCD doesn't really say anything about um, bike lanes in that context. Um, it's about the the way the control devices are used. So an example of, of how this comes into play is – uh, with like four way stops, uh, which is like a, you know, a feature of most, you know, neighborhoods, neighborhood streets. And the manual actually says that, uh, an all way stop at two small neighborhood streets doesn't meet the criteria for an all way stop, which blows a lot of people's minds. Uh, <laughs> you know, like, they're like, you know, what do you mean? Like every little neighborhood street has a, an always stop. Um, and most of those have been grandfathered in. Like they were four-way stops, oh. you know, in the 1950s that were put in uh, just because of like common sense. Like we want most people to stop <laughs> coming both ways. And then there's a manual created that said that wasn't an appropriate use or application of a four-way stop. And so, so now when people ask, city can i get a four-way stop you know at my quiet neighborhood streets they say actually it doesn't meet the standards and people say how is this possible and so this is just one example it's my pet example of how the mutcd is is just an outdated just a crazy document to you know in my opinion i think a lot of people will begin to feel this way uh to you know for governing city streets and so the you know with pete Buttigieg now as the transportation secretary there has been like some talks at a national level uh of revising mutcd a number of advocates uh that have like sort of a national voice spoken up about this and it's something that you know it's not something that at a local level you know going to be able to like disavow mutcd It's, it's more of a national conversation um, hmm. uh, to say like this is a document that needs to be reformed because it's it's affecting the way streets across the nation can be can be used. Well, I wonder if our ordinance could be modified to something like MUTCD will be the sort of standard, but with exceptions, right, for certain yeah, yeah. instances or yeah, yeah, and uh, that's that is definitely like. Uh, I think an avenue that we've been pursuing in some conversations uh, with with public works or with like the Metro Council members who work closely with public works is to say that, you know, is, is there a way to, to have that, not exception, but like uh, making it like a little bit tighter and saying like in these yeah. circumstances, uh, it meets these criteria, you know, and these criteria. Um, so we're not excluding the criteria from the MTTCD. We're saying, here's our additional criteria that we want to have. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think, I think there are some, there are some municipalities that view the MTTCD liberally and there are some that view it like sort of strictly. And I think it's just one of the, it is, it is like any, you know, document it's, uh, it's open to interpretation. As, as much as it, uh, you know, wants to be a guidelines. I think, you know, I think every sort of field has that sort of, that sort of document that like guides the, guides the, 
in this case, it's guiding engineers, but you know, there's accountants have their guiding documents and things like that. And they're, they're as much um, prescriptive as they are something that allows people to, to work within a guide, you know, set of parameters. Yeah. And so on a personal level, like within Louisville, I would like to see Louisville do some things that uh, are allowed by the MECCD, if not explicitly stated, you know, by the MCC. So again, this is with the, with, with like four way stops on neighborhood streets, for example, like the MUTCD says, like, if there's a site restriction, um, you know, that is a, an appropriate place to put in a, an all way stop on like two neighborhoods. Like, you want to be able to see, so you don't have to like get out, peek your head out into the intersection. And so, um, you know, if there's a site restriction, you can put in a stop sign. And I would like to see the city be more aggressive with using that that allowance to put in always stops, um, if that makes sense. Well, we're, we're nearing the end of our time, Chris, and um, I wonder if we could end by talking about uh, a fine example, I think, of why um, Streets for People matters as an organization and how it connects to sort of racial justice issues in our city and just, you know, helping solve some of the many community frustrations. And this this relates to the city's current railroading of a new California neighborhood plan. Uh, and and I, I received a letter that um, was written on March 24th to Michael King, who's director of Develop Louisville, right, from the California Neighborhood Leadership Council, talking about this plan and, and how it doesn't really reflect the residents' interests and concerns after what has been now a six-year process uh, that's just sort of classic metro botching of the process. Um, and let me just quote the letter, and, and, and I, I think it's really relevant to the work of Streets for People. They say, the proposed plan does not address the neighborhood's mobility priorities. And they, and they list four of them. One, improve the conditions and operations of streets and the Oak Street overpass, clear trash, needs paint and repairs, improved lighting, better signage. Number two, provide pedestrian-friendly walkways throughout California, especially those surrounding our parks, churches, and the historic Phyllis Wheatley Elementary. Uh, number three, reduce neighborhood traffic speed via speed bumps, stop signs, and better LMPD enforcement of traffic rules along neighborhood streets and intersections. And lastly, number four, reopen Kentucky Street closed by St. Stephen's Church without due process years ago. I mean, this really reflects a lot of the kinds of things that Streets for People is talking about, right? And it's not just crazy cyclists who want to see this stuff, right? Yeah, totally. And, that, you know, that's why we switched our name from Bicycling for Louisville, which felt a little niche to yeah. Streets for People, which I think hopefully it's a bigger tent that really reflects what I feel is, is a fairly universal feeling amongst people. Like they just want the streets that they live on to be a safe place to walk, safe place for the kids to go out front and not worry that a car is going to come and like steamroll down the, down the street. And I think I honestly feel like that is a universal feeling shared by so many Louisvillians, you know, uh, every socioeconomic sort of situation a person can be in in the city. And, um, and so, 
So yeah, I mean, as far as that, that California letter, you know, I, I see that like the traffic calming stuff that they talk about and that's, you know, related to the conversation we've had today. And I'm like, and I'm like, yeah, like I'm sure people from that neighborhood have, have pushed for stop signs and they've been met with this MUTCD <laughs> yeah, thing yeah. that says da 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 for X, Y, Z. So this, again, that relates to our conversation today. They probably asked for speed humps and they've been told, well, you need to be, need 70% of the homeowners on a block to do it. And they say, well, we don't have, we can't meet that bar, you know, because this person over here doesn't want it. And we don't even know who owns those houses. And we know yeah. who owns those houses. We can't get a hold of them. And so we only have, you know, 58% of the people. And they're like, you know, and, and stuff like these are the barriers that Metro government has set up to being responsive to the citizens' request. And it's just like, you know, it's like government should work for its people. And it's like, to me, this is a, you know, it's like such a, uh, this is what it gets back to. It's like, we just need a responsive government. And we've set up these ridiculous barriers to make it impossible for people who we are paying with our tax dollars to like do, to be able to implement the things that we ask them to implement. Like the residents of California can't get the things that they've asked for because like we have this ridiculous engineering document that's mandated, you know, from <laughs> a national body that we have to follow that's, you know, and, the, and we can't put in traffic calming for this reason. And so, yeah, I mean, it's just like a super frustrating thing. And, and, and the thing about those requests is they're so basic and so simple. They're just like, we just want to walk to our park. Yeah. We just want kids to be able to walk to school and not feel in danger. We just want to go outside of our house and not, <laughs> you know, be off because someone just blew down the street. And and it's like, those are the most, such basic things, such fixable problems. And it's like government, local government needs to address it. You know, it's like, just, uh, it just like hurts me in my bones <laughs> to, to know that like uh, local government can't respond to such a simple, attainable, visible change. And, uh, and that's, you know, that's, I think at our core, what, you know, we're one thing that we're working for is just like, we just want a government that can, is actionable, can do, can do these things, can pick up the trash, yep. can put in the speed hump, yeah. <laughs> you, know, it can, you know, can slow people down on our neighborhood street so that we can feel safe walking outside our house. Very well said. Chris Glasser, uh, I am so excited about the the new streets for people, and I'm so excited about your continued support of Forward Radio as a proud community partner. Uh, we honor you for this great work and for supporting the station, and uh, thank you, man, for taking the time today to join us here on Truth to Power. It's been, it's been great catching up with you, my friend. Of course, man. It's always a pleasure. Always an honor. Appreciate it, Monkey. All right. Stay tuned, everybody. Uh, coming up, lots of great stuff on Ford Radio. And uh, go to FordRadio.org now to pledge during our pledge drive and pick up on some great thank you gifts. We rely entirely on listener support. You won't ever hear any commercials. You won't hear any grant-funded programming. This is all you, all the listeners, making this stuff happen with volunteer power in your community dollars. So we rely on you, and we need you to go to FordRadio.org now and make your pledge. And uh, thank you so much for tuning in. We'll be back with another Truth to Power again next week. Stay tuned, my friends.